Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, professional archaeology groups and concerned citizens throughout the state are opposing proposed legislation that they say will legalize the looting and commercialization of historic artifacts. Well, we certainly encourage people to get in touch with their legislators. There's nothing more meaningful than a member of someone's district weighing in on a given piece of legislation. The 27th annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities is being held in Eatonville. So it's really a great opportunity not only to learn about Hurston, but to learn about uh, so many other aspects of African-American culture throughout the American South and the world. And with important elections taking place this year, we'll discuss the history of apportionment in Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Help! I need somebody. Help! Not just anybody. Help! You know I need someone. Professional archaeologists, archaeology enthusiasts, and concerned citizens from throughout the state are asking for your help to oppose legislation currently being considered. House Bill 803 and Senate Bill 1054 would allow anyone who purchases a $100 permit to dig for historic artifacts using a trowel. Archaeologists are passionate in their opposition to this pending legislation. Teresa Schober is president of the Florida Anthropological Society. Well, first, I would say that it's not just archaeologists who are up in arms. It's also people in general who care about the prehistory of Florida and the history of Florida to archaeologists to understand the past in the fullest way possible. What is significant is not a particular object that we find. It's what we find out about that object. And we know more information from how it's situated in the ground and what other objects may be around it. And that's a term that we call context. And it's from context that we can actually get at what people were doing, how they were behaving in the past, what their social systems were like. And we lose that information as soon as an object is taken up and ends up in private hands or ends up somewhere where, where it's disassociated with its original context. Patricia Myers is director of the Florida Historical Society Archaeological Institute based at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. To kind of uh, ex- give an example of what Teresa is explaining, here at the Brevard Museum we have the Windover Archaeological Exhibit. In that exhibit there's a beautifully incised bird bone. It's really wonderful. Because we found it within its context and we know the provenience of this particular artifact, we know that other similar artifacts were found only with burials of women. That gives us a little bit of insight into how this was used. Now, I often have people come into the museum in a very generous way to bring me something that was collected by their grandfather and it's been in the attic or the garage forever. I could still have that same beautiful artifact here in the museum, but I wouldn't be able to tell you as much about it because it was in the hands of an individual and we don't know the context from which it was taken. 
Included in the proposed legislation is a requirement that people would have to report from where they removed an artifact. Proponents of the legislation say it shouldn't be illegal for their children to pick up artifacts at the water's edge and take them home. Teresa Schober and Patricia Myers say it's more complicated than that. Between 1996 and 2005, the state of Florida had a voluntary program called Isolated Fines that was similar to the nature of the bill that's proposed, although there's some striking differences that we can certainly discuss. Um, And that required, if individuals found an object, they would report it, they would map it, they would, um, it was technically intended to relate to isolated objects, so meaning that there wasn't an associated context, which maybe a child, a boy or a girl of the gentleman you're mentioning might not be able to have those discerning identification skills to be able to tell whether they're removing something from an intact archaeological deposit or not. But one of the things that was done was the reports of, of these isolated finds over this 10-year period were analyzed, and it was determined that there was widespread noncompliance. The majority of the reports were from a very small number of individuals. And what came out of a later investigation in the last few years by Florida Fish and Wildlife is that some of the individuals that are taking artifacts from Florida waters illegally knowing that they're violating the law, would use this particular program as a way to sort of bypass um, that legality. And so there are some complicated issues associated with operating a program like that, and it would really need to come with a budget appropriation for the Division of Historical Resources so that the staff could effectively supervise this activity other than just letting people kind of come in when they felt like it to report these various fines. And there were certainly some very well-meaning citizens that reported all of their information. And then there was another group of individuals that didn't feel the need to be compliant, but used the law as a sort of scapegoat. And we understand um, from the professional anthropological community that people are really engaged in their own history and they want to be part of it. But there are a lot of venues available right now so that they can. Um, Teresa's president of the Florida Anthropological Society. There are chapters all around the state that if you are interested in our history and the archaeology of the state of Florida, you can become involved. Sometimes that allows you to actually work on an archaeological site with professional archaeologists. Part of the problem with the isolated finds is even though it required mapping, not everyone has the skills to map without having gone to a field school or a professional school so that you learn these things. So we do want to engage the public. We just want to do it in a way that protects all of our history. The idea of a citizen archaeology permit being issued to anyone is nothing new. It's been proposed in one form or another almost every year for decades. The legislation currently being considered, House Bill 803 and Senate Bill 1054, are different. Archaeologists are concerned that these bills would essentially legalize treasure hunting at the expense of preserving history. Teresa Schober. I think there's a couple of really significant differences that make this legislation um, a little more aggressive than the previous isolated fines policy. One of those aspects is that individuals can take hand tools and dislodge objects they see in submerged areas, in lakes and river bottoms. And so instead of just the idea that this is someone who's happening upon an object and happens to pick it up and that there needs to be some kind of a protection for sort of this hobby collector, in these cases you apply for a permit for $100 and now you can take tools to the bottom of a river. And if you see an object that is embedded, which may increase the likelihood that it's in some kind of intact sediment, 
well, you can you can kind of cut it out of the ground. The other thing that's significant is that when you apply for your permit, and this is probably the part that frightens me as an archaeologist the most, or certainly as someone who has been a land manager of archaeological and historical resources, is that the Division of Historical Resources, the state of Florida division that's that manages these sorts of deposits, are required to provide you with the locations of archaeological resources that you're supposed to avoid. Currently in the state of Florida, that site location information is exempt from the Florida Sunshine Law. And that's because we know that unsupervised archaeological resources that have significant deposits are at the greatest risk of being uh, damaged irreparably from individuals that are looking to extract the resources from them illegally. And so you essentially have to provide a map to the deposits in Florida and then trust that those same individuals that are um, lobbying for this legislation are not going to then impact them. In anticipation of possible legislation changing laws governing archaeology, the state of Florida distributed a questionnaire last year. The results of that survey seem to indicate public support for a revision of the laws. Patricia Myers thinks that not enough information was provided for people to make informed decisions. I think that there was strong support for this from the treasure hunting community. And the questionnaire was written in such a way that in some cases you only had an either-or answer. So even coming from my position as a professional anthropologist, it was difficult to express my concerns. There, it was just a limited number of questions, and I do believe that it was slightly skewed in favor of collecting data that really supported the position of people who have a vested interest in being allowed to take these cultural resources and keep them or, um, or sell them, which creates a whole nother can of worms because now you're creating a market for artifacts, and that's always very dangerous. And the, the survey was to assess whether or not an artifact amnesty should be held. So in a similar vein, the idea that someone might have collected objects that technically are from state lands and so violated the law unwittingly, um, it's today a third class felony to remove artifacts from state-owned submerged lands and terrestrial deposits. So there was a lot of support for giving people the benefit of the doubt, I think. And even as a professional archaeologist, I think that there's, as you were saying, there's some challenges in the way that that might be structured. But I think generally speaking, we as archaeologists and anthropologists want to engage with all individuals that are interested in the past in Florida. So we want to have these avenues where that's possible. No one's looking to overly ostracize individuals who do something unwittingly or haphazardly. But there's an underlying premise that they're is a connection with this legislation and with some of the individuals that have hired lobbyists to sponsor its work through the legislative process that the intent may not be so innocent. And being able to draw that line and separate out those two groups of individuals is a real challenge and, and it's going to be a challenge for lawmakers. It's possible that you're listening to this discussion and thinking to yourself, if I'm walking along the beach and see a Spanish coin or some other historic artifact, what's wrong with me taking it home and putting it on a shelf or even selling it? Archaeologists believe that there can be provisions for those kinds of discoveries, but that the current proposed legislation isn't the answer. It kind of goes back to everything that we've been talking about as far as if it's is it isolated? Is it truly isolated? Is it part of a shipwreck? And then there are a whole another set of laws and rules that revolve around how far offshore it has to be. 
I think we're talking about something very different than a child walking along the beach and, and finding a Spanish coin. Um, that's a, a reason to have a broader discussion about this and certainly not to very quickly just pass bills that leave us open to the dangers of our cultural resources being collected and either held in private collections or sold for profit. Even in 2005, when the Florida Historical Commission advocated the discontinuance of the isolated fines policy, there was individuals and organizations that were weighing in at that time. And there was many members of the professional community that felt that we know the isolated fines program is not working as it's structured, and maybe there's a way to structure it differently. And I don't think that the professional community would be averse to having that conversation about how something could be structured that would meet the needs of the of the concerns for someone who um, isn't intending to commit a felony. At the same time, that conversation hasn't happened. In the last 10 years, that conversation didn't happen. And instead, new legislation that's more aggressive in its extent is proposed and it's moving very quickly through the House. And so I think there's, there's concern that what we will be left with is something that's more aggressive than a program we already know wasn't successful at meeting its aims. If you would like to influence whether or not this proposed legislation governing archaeology is passed into law, now is the time. Well, we certainly encourage people to get in touch with their legislators. Um, There is nothing more meaningful than a member of someone's district weighing in on a given piece of legislation. And sometimes, um, you know, there can be a lot of information on every bill, and we elect legislative leaders, and they have a tremendous workload to maintain a level of knowledge about all of the different facets of each of these bills. So just making them aware from your own districts is incredibly helpful. This particular bill has already already been directed to various subcommittees in both the Senate and the House. And so the individuals that are on those subcommittees are going to be the first ones to review this legislation. So if you're in one of those districts in particular where your legislative representatives are on a subcommittee that's reviewing this bill early on, we certainly would encourage those individuals to to talk to their legislative delegation. And we've provided on the Florida Historical Society Archaeological Institute's website, as well as our Facebook page, all of the information you need to contact the individual in the district that you're in. If you would like to find out more about how you can help to protect our historical cultural artifacts, visit brevardmuseum.org or like Florida Historical Society Archaeological Institute on Facebook. Won't you please, please help me? This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, find out about the television version of Florida Frontiers, and much more. While you're there, find out how to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. When I get in Illinois, I'm going to spread the news about the Florida boys. Shove it over. Hey, 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 can't you line it? Oh, can't you move it? Hey, hey, can't you try? Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, the 27th annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities is being held in Eatonville. 
Yeah, that's right. And for those who aren't aware of uh, who Zora Neale Hurston is, she is a, a famous African-American author, folklorist, and anthropologist who is best known for her writings on uh, rural Florida in the early 20th century, specifically the uh, black communities throughout Florida. Uh, she was born in 1891, actually in Natasulga, Alabama, although in her autobiography she claimed she was born in, in the town of Eatonville. She was actually born in Alabama, but moved to Eatonville when she was about three years old. Her father was elected mayor a number of times at the town of Eatonville. He was also a, a preacher in the town. Uh, they moved to the town, and, uh, uh, and that's essentially where she grew up. Uh, she later moved uh, to New York City. She attended uh, Howard University, Barnard College, and then came back to Florida in the 1920s uh, and began collecting uh, oral histories of her native town of Eatonville, but rural communities throughout Florida. And these uh, original oral histories were compiled into her book, Mules and Men, uh, which is still in print today and is a, a wonderful collection of a lot of uh, oral history stories about her original town. She traveled uh, not only throughout Florida, but throughout the American South. She went back to Alabama, Louisiana, Georgia, and throughout the Caribbean. She wrote a number of fascinating uh, essays and stories about the voodoo culture in, in Jamaica and Haiti, uh, eventually uh, moved uh, back up north, lived in D.C. She was uh, really a traveler, so she traveled all over the world, came back to Florida in the 1950s, lived in O'Galley in Brevard County, and eventually she was living in Fort Pierce, where she passed away in 1960. Of course, she's probably best known for her 1937 novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God. Uh, so she was a, a novelist as well as an anthropologist. And Hurston's adopted hometown of Eatonville is historic in its own right as the oldest incorporated African-American municipality in the United States. Yes, that's right. It was incorporated in 1887, uh, and it's a, kind of an interesting story of how the town was formed. Uh, originally, the neighboring town of Maitland was incorporated first, and it was founded by former Union officers who were uh, officers in the Union Army during the Civil War, and this is shortly after Reconstruction. Uh, they moved to Florida and settled around the Maitland area, and there are a number of uh, both white and black citizens. Well, uh, soon after that point, a number of the black citizens decided to form their own town, and that's really kind of the, the beginning of Eatonville. And the name uh, Eatonville comes from one of those Union captains, uh, Josiah Eaton, who provided the land for the, the first uh, buildings that, that would become the town of Eatonville in 1887. Uh, and as you mentioned, Ben, it is the oldest African-American municipality in the United States um, and has remained so. Uh, now, throughout uh, Hurston's life, it was still a, a relatively small town, numbering uh, in a few hundreds, but it held a special place in her heart. In fact, throughout her writings, her anthropological works and her novels, she uses the town of Eatonville uh, as her backdrop. In her autobiography, Dust Tracks on a Road, she talks a little bit about the founding of her town like this, quote, Eatonville is what you might call hitting a straight lick with a crooked stick. The town was not in the original plan. It is a byproduct of something else, end quote. So what she's referring to is that it was essentially an offshoot of, of the town of Maitland that uh, was predominantly a, a white community, uh, and Eatonville was kind of an offshoot of that original community. Well, this year marks the 27th annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities in Eatonville, which makes me feel a little bit old because I, was, I remember the very first one. Yeah, that's right. And if you haven't been before, it's a wonderful festival. And now, uh, as I mentioned before, Eatonville is still a, a fairly small community. There are only about 2,000 permanent residents. But every year uh, when the Zora Neale Hurston Festival comes around, it swells to a few thousand. And, and folks get an opportunity not only to learn about Zora Neale Hurston, her anthropological works and her academic and many of her novels, um, they get to learn about the town of Eatonville. And it's sponsored by the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community, who have put on this festival for the last 27 
seven years. And it, most people probably visit the town on the weekend for the street festival, but it's actually an entire week of uh, academic presentations, uh, storytelling. We have authors who uh, um, write about Hurston and, and uh, a number of other uh, topics are, are giving lectures. Uh, so it's really a great opportunity, not only to learn about Hurston, but to learn about uh, so many other aspects of African-American culture throughout the American South and the world. And the Florida Historical Society will, of course, be at the Zora Neale Hurston Festival in our own tent. Thanks a lot, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. The 27th Annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities is being held January 23rd through 31st. As part of the event, I'll be facilitating a panel discussion Friday morning, January 29th in the Bush Auditorium at Rollins College called In Conversation, the Zora Neale Hurston I Remember. Highlights of the outdoor festival feature musical performances, including the Isley Brothers on Saturday, January 30th. More information at ZoraFestival.org. Eat him up whiskers so he won't shave. Eat him up body like he won't bathe. Shove it over. Hey, hey, oh, can't you lie in there? Oh, shackle like a like a like a like a like <clears throat> Can't you move it? Hey, 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 can't you try? Oh, the rooster chewed tobacco, the hen dip a snuff. The bitty can't do it, but he struts his stuff. Shove it over. Hey, 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 can't you lie in there? Oh, shackle like a like a like a like a like a Can't you move it? Hey, 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 can't you try? Yeah, come a woman walking across the field. A mouth exhausting like an automobile. Shove it over. Hey, 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 can't you lie in there? Oh, shaka, like a, like a, like a, like a, like a, <clears throat> can't you move it? Hey, hey, can't you try? The captain got a pistol, he tried to play bad, but I'm gonna take it if it make me mad. Shove it over. Hey, hey, can't you lie in there? Oh, shaka, like a, like a, like a, like a, like a, <clears throat> can't you move it? Hey, 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 can't you try? This is Florida Frontiers. How voting districts are drawn can determine the outcome of elections. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has this look at apportionment in Florida. As a result of this system that, that distributed seats based on county and limited Senate seats based on counties, a mere 22% of the state's population was able to control the legislature. You had a lot of small counties in the panhandle, and as long as they voted together, they actually formed a majority in the state legislature. In fact, they, the, the group was called the Pork Chop Gang, and they ran the state. That was Dr. Charles Zeldin, professor of history and political science at Nova Southeastern University. He spoke to me about the issue of apportionment in Florida since the 19th century. As Florida grew throughout the 20th century, people often heard about apportionment because Florida's rural counties had a greater voice in the state legislature than the urban counties compared to their total population. And this created a political backlash. The roots of this political debate go back to the 19th century and the 1885 Florida Constitution. Professor Zeldin explains. Well, in 1885, when they set up the, the Constitution, they put in what was something that's been called sort of a county unit system. 
which is to say that every county, no matter how small, had to have at least one seat in the state assembly. And every county, no matter how big, could only have one seat in the state Senate. So what that did is it created a very large imbalance in terms of population over time in that you had some representatives who were representing a county with 10, 15,000 people. And then by the 20th century in Miami-Dade, you had someone who might be representing thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. And Miami-Dade, which increasingly became larger and larger, only had the one state Senate seat, despite the fact that, you know, it had over 300,000 people in the county. Professor Zeldin tells me about the rise of the pork chop gang. The pork chop gang was, was essentially a, a group of allied representatives and state senators from northern Florida. And because you had lots of small counties, these people were not only elected in larger numbers relative to the rest of the state, but they also kept on getting reelected and reelected. So they had seniority on top of numbers. And as a result, uh, as long as they voted together, they had the majority of votes in the state house. So essentially, the northern part of the state, which of course is the most southern part of the state, was in control. Anything that needed to get passed, anything that we wanted to do, had to be approved of by these state legislators who came from the panhandle through Jacksonville and a little bit further down towards Ocala. If they didn't want something, it just simply didn't happen because they wouldn't vote for it and they had the votes. And ultimately, in the legislature, it's a question of, do you have enough votes to pass your legislative agenda? And so the growing urban sections of the state, Orlando, Tampa, South Florida, found themselves increasingly on the outs, despite the fact that they had more than half of the state's population. The issue of apportionment came to a head in the 1960s. Has the nation reflected anew on the issue of civil rights and voting rights? Professor Zeldin tells me how the federal government by way of the U.S. Supreme Court, came down on statewide apportionment. In 1962, in the case of Baker versus Carr, the Supreme Court said that the apportionment of legislative power was something that was a constitutional question and therefore could be litigated in the courts. Prior to this, the federal courts pretty much said, it's a political question, we don't do political questions. And in the state courts, even if they were interested in doing something, all they had the power to do was to simply invalidate an existing apportionment and send you back to the older apportionment, which in many cases was even more gerrymandered than the current one. There was a case called Swan versus Adams that begins about 1962, at the same time that there are cases coming out of Georgia and Alabama, all of which are challenging the apportionment rules of these southern states. And as they went up through the appellate ladder, they got to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court began to issue rulings in cases like Westbury versus Gray, Gray versus Sanders, and especially Reynolds versus Sims, because that dealt with state legislatures. And they began to impose this idea of one person, one vote, numerical equality, that legislative districts needed to be roughly the same population so that there wasn't this great imbalance. You know, Miami-Dade with 300 plus thousand people for one Senate seat, and then having a Senate seat up in the panhandle that might have 30,000 people. That was Dr. Charles Eldon, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also listen online at myfloridahistory.org or as a podcast. Follow the conversation on Facebook as well. 
Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.